0: Welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Radio Show with host Karen Rands. A compassionate capitalist is someone who invests their money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market and create wealth for all those involved. Karen shares insights and best practices for entrepreneurs to succeed and investors to share in that success without all the risks. And now. Welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Show. Of course, I'm Karen Rands and... For those that are watching today, you see my guest here, Matt Theory, it's the waves. I want to introduce him and get started in our topic and and for those that listen to on a regular basis, you know that the goal out of this show is to equip entrepreneurs and investors to build successful businesses that are profitable and gener- create generational wealth for those that are involved as they move on through that process and that company gets sold or goes public or something positive happens with their exit. And I asked Matt to be on this show today because uh, we were recently involved in a, uh, another event and I met him and I, thought, and I saw that there's so much stuff. It seems like a, a, there, there are so many different things that uh, come up on a regular basis when it regards to getting set up properly as a business, and how do you foresee certain things that might happen and take action when you're getting started to prevent those down the road? And and in my book, Inside Secrets to Angel Investing, although it's geared towards investors, it's really kind of important for entrepreneurs as well. And we're going to kind of get into some of some of this stuff. But I, I sometimes compare. Uh, starting a business and finding investors to the whole process of getting married. And so, you know, you have your introduction, then your first date, then your courtship, which is usually where due diligence is done, and then marriage, where you ink the deal and you have the, you know, the official contract between the investors and the entrepreneurs. And then you're hoping that, you know, you live happily ever after, but occasionally there's a divorce. Nobody goes into a marriage with the expectation of a divorce. Nobody goes into business with the expectation that they're going to get sued and have a lawsuit and they lose everything. So, let's talk about what some of those protections are, and all of those kinds of things that you should be thinking about, investors should be thinking about, entrepreneurs should be thinking about, and you know, don't and, and plan ahead as part of that. So, you know, Matt is uh, is an expert attorney in this area. Uh, He, uh, I'll explain a little bit about his background and then he'll, he'll fill in uh, more, but, you know, so he's been practicing since 2004 and then in Georgia since 2006 with the ability to represent clients in a court at every level, all the way up to the Supreme Court. I'm wondering, and we're going to ask him, so hope maybe he'll tell us if he's ever actually gone to the highest court on, a, on behalf of a client. But, but as a business lawyer, Matt provides advice to existing businesses and startups regarding issues including risk management, covenants, business formation, and other day-to-day matters encountered by businesses. He also routinely assists clients by reviewing, negotiating, and drafting contracts, keeping business objective, objectives and practicality in mind. The Goal to Avoid Disruption in Business Due to Legal Challenges and Lawsuits. Matt is also the host of the Building Business podcast that I recently have been a guest on, which you can find through his website and out there on on all the platforms that you listen to shows like iTunes. So that I'm going to go ahead and go with that, and you can fill in your your gaps on that. So the question that's burning the hole on top of my head, how far up the court hierarchy have you gone? Any cases in front of the Supreme Court and you know, did you always know that you were going to be a lawyer and what led you into business law?
1: Sure. So starting with the, how far up the chain have I gone? I have not gone to the U S Supreme court. I have gone to the Supreme court in uh, several States, including Georgia, Tennessee and Pennsylvania. So, uh, not, 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 not yet to the U S Supreme court, hopefully someday, uh, hopefully for my clients never though. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) That's always the goal is to not have to go to the Supreme court. Uh, as far as, uh, how did I get here? Uh, well, first, you know, I want to mention, you know, we're going to talk a lot about legal concepts today. And even though I'm a lawyer and we're going to be talking about these concepts, I just want to make sure it's clear to everybody that's listening. You know, we're talking broad picture, educational content, as opposed to specific legal advice. So you can't rely on the things that are said today as legal advice. You need to talk to a lawyer, uh, to get your specific situation addressed. But, uh, that aside, uh, No, I didn't know that I always wanted to be a lawyer. I think uh, originally when I was growing up, I thought that I wanted to be a marine biologist. And (laughs) and later on, that became a passion of mine with uh, marine aquariums. But the concept of law came into mind probably in high school for me. Uh, I I enjoyed law. I enjoyed politics. I went and I obtained a um, degree in political science and philosophy uh, from Teal College in Pennsylvania. And after that, I took a couple of years before going to law school. So I contemplated going to law school, but didn't didn't immediately jump at it as well. And during that time, I had uh, two sh- short careers. Uh, one in computer programming. Uh, I did some computer software development for a printing business, and then after that, I jumped out in the printing industry myself and owned a distribution company. So. I come at the practice of law from a little different angle, having been a business owner before a lawyer, understanding that, you know, sometimes lawyers tell people what they can't do and why they can't do it. And what, and business owners need to know how they can do it and get around this, this roadblock situation instead of always being told why they can't do something. So that's yeah. a different approach that I have to that. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's where, where I came from. But Law wasn't always in the cards for me that I knew of, but I think uh, if you would talk to friends and family, I love to argue with them. So uh, (laughs) they they probably were were seeing it further ahead than I had.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So very good. That's really interesting to go from business and then into law, you know, so many folks don't do that. Their only experience with being an entrepreneur is running their own law firm. So did you spend any time working for another law firm or did you just hang your sh- shingle out to start?
1: Yeah, actually, I started in Pennsylvania. I worked for a law firm there in my hometown where I had grown up and I practiced law there for about two years uh, and then was lured by the uh, much better climate in Atlanta, <laughs> <laughs> left the left the snowbelt area of Pennsylvania and came down to Atlanta with my wife and started practicing here. I was at a, a law firm in the Buckhead area of Atlanta for 11 years. About half of that time, I was a partner with that firm as well. Oh, and then, okay. uh, four years ago, uh, well, four years in, in a couple of days, it'll be the four-year anniversary. Uh, really? I decided I was going to do it myself. And that entrepreneurial spirit that I had back before becoming a lawyer kind of was scratching at the surface again, and it was time to do it and wanted to, to own my own law firm. So that's what I decided I would do about four years ago
0: really good great so let's let's get into some of these things that you need to do when you're first sort of starting up and you know there's um like i guess the best way to tackle it is sort of within the idea of of you know organizational structure and then the agreements of foul you know sort of maybe by unraveling where we see things that have happened to people and then what could they have done to have Prevented that, so you know one of you know whether you lo- think of a, a notorious big lawsuit that happened where you had the rights of the original Facebook, right? Because there was this big lawsuit that uh, Zuckerman had had a um, uh, some guys in college that was in the dorm with them that had been part of the original idea of this college app that, of course, morphed into the other, and they. Moved on, you know, did their thing or he went on without them and then it became really famous. And usually these things don't happen if you fail. They only really become an issue when you are successful. And so that kind of goes into originally setting up buy-sell agreements, the the transferability of stocks and stuff and setting up um, founders' shares, uh, ownership rights of the intellectual property Non-disclosure, non-competes, all of those are different, I guess, uh, uh, instruments to protect the business itself and really kind of the founder, because the founder may identify themselves directly as the business, but investors really know that those things, need to know those things are in place, because in that particular case, Facebook was big enough that they could fend that off, but that whole thing would have gone completely haywire, whatever it was, five, six, 10 years ago. And those investors would have lost everything had it been resolved in a different way. So what's some insights that you can share about, you know, nobody thinks when they're getting married, nobody thinks when they're finding a business and their um, founder or their co-founder is going to you know, it's going to be a problem later on because they're all got that starry eyed. Oh, yay. We're starting this business. We got this great idea. And until it's not anymore.
1: Yeah. So I would say to you that you, you hear more about the stories when there's a battle over success. Uh, but there are a fair number of business disputes between owners that come out of the failures of the business as well as this, this sort of attributing fault that someone take personal advantage of the business to the exclusion of their partners and stuff like that. But let's unpack this a little bit at a time with, uh, let's look at structure. You know, one of the things that um, you and I have talked about before is planning is important. Having an idea of where you're going before you start down the road. And the way you look at some of the initial expenses that you incur for your business is, probably indicative of how things will plan themselves out. Uh, so do you look at paying a lawyer to help you with your, your structure and to help you with your basic documents and your contracts as an expense or an investment? Uh, that is a, a very, very different approach. Uh, you know, uh, looking at it as an expense, you're trying to minimize your contact with that person and trying to get through it as quickly as possible just barely skimming the surface you look at it as an investment you're looking at it as yeah i might have to spend some money up front but that money spent up front will save me a lot of money down the road and that is so often the case Absolutely. and as you as you're mentioning the you know do you have the proper corporate documents in place that that's important for several reasons one you know some of these issues are less so important with a single member business. So if I'm the only shareholder or the only member of the LLC, you know, when you get into the, who makes decisions and what kind of decisions need to be made, obviously that's not much of an issue because there's no one else to interfere in that process. If you have a partner, if you, if there's more than one person involved in the business, now that becomes very, very important. What types of decisions can be made and who can make those decisions is very, very, very difficult to work through. Do all of the folks in the company owe a fiduciary duty to the company so that they're always looking out for the best interests of the business versus their own personal interests. Uh, important to know. And, you know, those laws vary from state to state, but in general, you know, if you are a, an officer of a business, you typically owe a duty of loyalty to the business that you're not going to take personal advantage of the opportunities that present themselves for yourself versus, providing that opportunity to the business so that the business can take advantage of that opportunity. Those types of arguments are uh, very frequent. Someone doesn't put an opportunity through the business that they should have put through the business, then you get into whether or not they have the right documents in place for their company to back up that battle. In other words, do you, you know if you're an LLC, do you have an operating agreement that addresses that? And, you know, and structurally, you know, the documents may have different names. It may be bylaws in a shareholders agreement or an operating agreement for an LLC. But in essence, what they're trying to accomplish through those documents is, is to establish a protocol for how decisions are made, how distributions are made, what the duties of the individual owners are, and, and basically set the roadmap in place for the business itself in that document, it's usually advisable if you have multiple partners to also include exit. Uh, you know, what if one of the partners decides later on, you know, this was a great, but I no longer have the time, energy, or belief that this business is going where I want it to go. I want out. Does that mean you have to liquidate the entire company because you believe it? The other partner may not agree with you. And the other partner may say, this is just gonna, this, we're just on the cusp. We're getting there, but we're not quite there yet. And I have faith that this is gonna happen. So you have two, polar opposite positions. Now, if you don't have things in place, the the likely scenario is that you're forcing a liquidation of the business. If you cannot agree on a buyout of that partner, if you have in your documents, a structure as to how that is presented, uh, then you have something to work within without requiring the first step B considering liquidating the business. You can have situations where the partner offers it to third parties And then the other partners have a right of first refusal. You have opportunities for the presentation of an offer from one partner to the other partner. And if that partner declines, the offering partner can then buy out the other partner at that same deal. Uh, There are a lot of options that you can do, but there are ways to deal with these things on the front end that provide opportunities to resolve the situation prior to it becoming a battle in a court system somewhere. And I think that those are fundamentally important things to take care of in the beginning. It's sort of like you, you gave the mentioning of a, a marital situation. When you look at these structural documents, you look at these almost like a prenuptial agreement mm-hmm. in the sense that it's much easier to talk through. Now, in, in the context of a, a marriage, it's a little different, obviously, because you have this concept of you're talking about the breakup before you're actually getting married may or may not be a good thing for that relationship but in a business relationship it's usually a very good idea because things may seem very very rosy at the beginning but things may not always go the same way that you thought they were going to go and it's easier to to reach agreement on these issues when the parties are all moving on the same course they're all together everybody is is encouraged and believing in what's the process what we're going to do the success of the business. It's much more difficult to get folks to agree to terms of dissolution after things have come off the off the rails, um, because now you have distrust and anger, you have frustration, um, you know, you have all of these different emotions that are in the in the picture that were not in the original picture, and it becomes a very much much more strenuous process. I would also say, I I like the idea, and I will qualify this. I am also a mediator and an arbitrator, so. I also like the idea of in those documents requiring the parties to mediate their dispute before any of them files any type of action, whether it be an arbitration or a court case, so that cooler heads can prevail. They have an opportunity to get in a room with a third party neutral that can look at the situation, make recommendations, and oftentimes with the success rate of mediation, it's a good investment for those parties because they can then be told by the mediator things that their lawyers have probably already told them, but they need to hear it from a third party. And that is, this is not going to look good for your business. You know, what does it look like to the outside world? If the owners of this business are in a dispute, most people in the outside world are going to pull back. They're not going to want to get involved. That means they probably aren't going to buy if they're buyers. Um, Maybe customers get a little paranoid about what's going on. They want to look for another source to get that thing taken care of because they don't know whether or not this company is reliably going to be in existence shortly. Uh, So there are a lot of things to the external world that an internal dispute, if publicized, can cause harm for the business itself. So this gives the owners an opportunity to say, look, we no longer have the same vision. We no longer have the same plan, but we need to figure out a way out of this problem. And what's the usually by getting in a mediation room early before you get into a dispute, you have the opportunity to maximize the value of that business because you haven't deteriorated the value by those publicity issues. And that, that is a, um, a very important part of an operating agreement or a shareholders agreement that I think is oftentimes overlooked uh, because a lot of folks think well, we'll just negotiate amongst ourselves, And if we don't agree, we'll just go to go to the next step. But, it's different when you're actually in the dispute. Once you're in the dispute, working amongst yourselves is not as easy because there's usually an allegation that somebody has done something to put you where you're at. Yeah. Partner, a, partner A believes partner B didn't put his full effort into it. Partner B believes that um, partner A didn't put her best effort into it or partner A took advantage of an opportunity to her own advantage. So there are a lot of things that change the landscape later on that can be dealt with at the beginning so a little bit of foresight i know that usually you don't plan to fail um, but if you fail to plan you sort of are in a sense planning yeah. to fail later on so you 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 have the damage compound later on if you don't take care of some of these things on the front end
0: yeah and i see like we're going through a mentoring uh situation right now with a competition through one of the angel groups and they've asked for operating agreements, right? They've asked for that stuff because I think sophisticated angels that have experience know that that stuff can happen, that it needs to be covered early on. And I've seen, I saw it when I didn't really understand this and I saw it early early on when I was running my angel investor group and deals where there's investors that are ready to invest and they'll say, so, you know, send us your cap table, for example, or send us your which for those that are listening that are new to this this is, that's where you have set up how much capital has been brought in and who has what shares at what value, and what price, and so when you are dividing up your initial startup shares with founders or you have uh, employees that you're rewarding or paying in part in stock, all that stuff gets documented on that, and these companies, uh, entrepreneurs would be sort of like deers in headlights because they've talked about it. They knew they were all going to be shareholders and founders in this, but nobody had really had that conversation about, oh, you're going to get 10% or 5% and me, because I'm the big dude, I get 55%. And then when the investors come in, and so they, they have, everybody has their own perspective and they haven't even really, really gotten started, but it's like, you know, how much they have put into, the, how much they value their sense of the idea versus the person that architected it versus the person that did the go to market or the person that named it, or the person that, all these kind of things. And it, uh, an, a, a, an endeavor can get stuck from the very beginning and we even saw a company that won a competition went all the way through it was coming out of a college the girl with girl that was on the team wanted to go off and pursue her own career and had helped him get to that point the founder and, 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 and visionary that knew the technology he basically got stuck because they never could figure out how to put her out of the group even though they were just something that had won a business plan competition in you know so what we've had to get folks involved and so do you it almost like you have to get you have to mediate at the beginning if they bring in a lawyer because they haven't actually set it up they might have had an llc but they haven't really done any of the other stuff they don't really have they have the the generic fill in the blank on the website at the state the secretary of state and then you've got to get into all of those emotions before they've even really gotten start started to do that. so have you had experiences like that, and how have you navigated to help companies figure that out even when they're sort of at that threshold of launching?
1: Yeah, so yes, I have experience with that, both as a lawyer representing parties and as a mediator as well, where the problem is now in front of you before you realize it. you know, you have to, when you think about entrepreneurs, you have to think about the fact that ordinarily entrepreneurial folks have a certain amount of risk tolerance. Uh, If they didn't have any risk tolerance, if they were wholly risk averse, they probably are not entrepreneurs uh, because by nature, it's kind of striking your own path, which is somewhat risky. Uh, So sometimes that spills over into their structure. And what I mean by that is they just fly by the seat of their pants a little bit, and then they have to fix the problems as they come up. We'll fix it when it comes up. If it's not a problem, I'm not going to put any attention to it. You know, if if it's not broken, don't fix it. (laughs) Um, But it's broken and you just don't know that it's broken. That's the real problem. Or your
0: denial that it's broken.
1: That's right. And then so in your situation, for example, where you're, you're stuck with a scenario, you know, how do you get past that? That person that may or may not have had the leverage in the conversation early on All of a sudden has a lot more leverage because they know now that you want to pitch competition and you have the ability to do things to grow this business. Even if she doesn't want to be involved anymore, you know her percentage may have been a small percentage early on in the conversation. But by the very fact that you are coming to her and trying to figure out how to get her out of the way, she now knows that she has way more leverage in the conversation than she did early on. Uh, so not only is it going to cost you from a legal sense of trying to get these papers created to, to better structure your business, it's going to cost you from a capital sense because now you're going to be paying her a lot more money to go away. Uh, and yeah, that happens unfortunately regularly where they didn't have the paperwork in place. They didn't have things structured properly and the fix is now expensive. Um, and you know, sometimes it wrecks the business completely at that point mm-hmm. in time, because you know, if there's something that's time sensitive, um, and they can't, they can't meet that deadline because of this issue, then even more pressure goes onto that situation and even more leverage goes to that conversation from the other side. So that that's a very difficult thing to address later. It's much easier to deal with it early on. It can be addressed. It's not that it's impossible to address it, but it's not an easy fix. And that's the, I think that's the, the, the main point to be taking into consideration here is that it's a lot easier, a lot easier to fix these things by before they become a problem than, after they become a problem you know it's just it's i think it's the nature of the world i think most things are easier to prevent than to fix
0: yeah well and it's also sometimes there are there are hard conversations to have and so reason why people don't have them is because they're hard conversations and they just keep cohen sort of you know puttering along putting it off to the future and, you know, ultimately ended up having to pay compounded interest on that conversation, if you will. So, yeah, it's, it's like, uh, you know, and I've seen where some of these companies and I, so, so when somebody has set up, like, so they've, they've kind of put it on paper, they've, you know, intending when we get money and, you know, these shares are worth something. This is what you're going to be. This is what you're going to get paid as we get things going. This is what we expect you to do to get that money. And then for whatever reason, it takes really long time for the company to raise capital. And by the time they, they get there, and, and everybody early on contributed, but they didn't do as much as the founder did because the founder stayed highly motivated to get this done. It just took a year or two longer to get things off the ground for whatever reason. And then um, that, one of those people, maybe the, they were gonna be the CTO, they've gone on, or in this case, and this kind of leads us into, you know, death and dis- disability kinds of stuff. One of the person that was gonna be in the company is now passed. The company never really got launched or passed. Is there an obligation to, even though they never got anything inked, if they were on the chart as having 5% of this company, does the family have rights to that 5% now? Would there, because it is, it's not necessarily a contract, but there's an expectation because of emails and conversations and things put on spreadsheets that they're, the organization is liable for that?
1: You've probably bought yourself litigation. Uh, the, the, the short of that uh, one way to look at it would probably be tax returns uh, most of the time a tax return will reflect the owner's interest in the company so if you have if you're with past your first year uh, you probably have some documentation but yeah there's going to be an argument uh, we had a case once uh, that litigated and, and thankfully I was not a part of it the entire time but it was a, it was a, a piece of litigation that lasted I believe almost 10 years Um, and in that situation, there was a promise made to, and and unfortunately it was a family member, um, that the family member would get a percentage of the, of the family business by being an owner or owner slash operator of one of the locations for the business. And the person did that went and worked for the business. And then later on, uh, the family members got into a dispute and the owner That owned the majority of the company decided you're no longer going to have the opportunity to get this interest. So they didn't have any documentation at all relating to that. It went on, like I said, for about 10 years. And ultimately, that person did have enough documentation to show that. And ultimately, the, the person that was supposed to be transferred a partial interest in the company did prevail. But at what cost? I mean, what, what cost, if you think about 10 years of litigation, I mean, that's, that's an absurdly long piece of litigation. Most cases do not last 10 years, but 10 years of litigation to fight over a piece of a family business is incredibly expensive, incredibly taxing. Uh, You know, when you're in, when you're in business, one of the things that, you know, I try to remind business owners as well is you're not really in business to litigate. Uh, If you're in the business to litigate, then you probably got your focus on the wrong thing. What you're in business to do is make money and you're, you're making money by selling your service, by selling your widget, whatever it is that your primary purpose is. When you're in litigation, your focus shifts. You start thinking about your litigation more and less about your widget or your service. And when you start to do that, there's an unintended damage that you suffer as well, because when you're not putting hundred percent of your efforts behind the business, things tail. Uh, So you'll suffer your business will suffer by the fact that the, the primary folks that need to be focused on this business are thinking about something else. So there's an opportunity cost associated with litigation as well. And, you know, for a piece of litigation that goes on for that long of time, obviously the lawyer's fees are very high. Uh, the, I mean, this process in that case went through appeals as well. So it's a very long drawn out process could have simply been resolved, simply been resolved by a very short document relating to the interest that this person was receiving in the business. That's all that it would have taken. It didn't exist, but had it had the person insisted on that before going ahead with the plan to operate and run this particular location, this entire piece of litigation would have been taken out of, out of commission. It would not have existed. So when you, you, you talk about the cost of not doing it, the investment versus the expense, the expense of not doing it in that particular case was just, Overwhelmingly larger than what it would have cost to actually have something taken care of on the front end.
0: So, now let's get into sort of like that, you know, because you've got your shares that you started the beginning with, and then you've got this future because you're going to be bringing in more investors, and then eventually where you go. So, talk about the difference of how that might relate. And I don't think you could do it in an LLC, so please educate me if I'm wrong. But when you come to like the number of shares that are authorized versus issued versus, and, you know, how that affects, you know, uh, like, you know, giving out shares, founder shares versus the shares that then get issued because somebody purchased them. And it's been a couple of minutes talking about about that perspective of it because LLCs are member units that aren't really shares, but oftentimes get converted to shares. Can you do the same thing within an LLC versus a S corp or C corp?
1: Sort of. And the, the way to look at it is a lot of times in an LLC folks rely on percentage of membership interest. Uh, So you're a 10% owner or you're a 20% owner. And you can look at the same thing by the number of shares you have in a corporation. However, in a corporation, you have a number of shares that you're, you're issued. And in an LLC, you can do something similar to that. And you, re- you referenced units. And you can you can do a similar concept with shares versus units, whereas you can issue units Uh, And, you know, the company can authorize a certain number of units, just like it can authorize a certain number of shares, and then it can issue to individuals those units. Uh, There is a little difference and a little nuance in the sense that, and this is getting off into the weeds into some other issues that we probably won't get into today, but when you, a lot of LLCs make an election to be taxed as an S corporation, and the the trick with that is that as a part of the regulations to be qualified as an S corporation, whether you're an LLC or a corporation, you can only have one class of ownership. So you can't have a, a investor class and a owner class. Or, you, know, every, you can't have class A shares, class B shares. You can't have class A units, class B units. Everybody has the same class if you have an S election. If you don't, you're not going to qualify for So that's a little that's a little different down the road, but that does come into play a lot when you're dealing with investors, because oftentimes investors may have certain rights and privileges, they may have preferential rights and privileges, uh, but they may not have necessarily the same uh, voting rights, there are very different things that can be structured into the relationship. But if you have made an S election, you have to be mindful of the fact that you have to you have certain limitations on what you can do either way. But yes, you can deal with the issued um, versus authorized units in the same sense that you can with a corporation as well. The you know the structure is important. I mean that that's the documentation of how you're handing these out, um, who owns what, and how they're earning them. Very complicated because you know, obviously day one shares or units are a lot easier to deal with because they're right in the, they're right in the structural documents, right? You know, as of today, we're signing the shareholders agreement and Karen owns 50 units or 50 shares and Matt owns 50 units or 50 shares. By the way, I would very rarely recommend a situation where you have equal ownership, different issue, but that's, that's easy to address in the sense that it's in the original document. What happens after So, you know, building into the document, how additional shares will be issued, how uh, transferability is important. And I, you brought up death and disability as well. And I think that comes into the transferability conversation as well, but there are two parts of death and disability. So I'll talk about transferability. And then I want to talk about the second part on, on that as well. But first on transferability, ordinarily, you want to know who your partners are and have control over who your partners are. So there, there usually is a situation where you structure it that if there's a, a opportunity to sell your shares or your units, you have a right of first refusal so that you can control whether or not you're taking on this third party as a new partner right. in your agreement. Um, if you don't have an agreement, it's kind of, you know, there's a lot of open season that goes on with that kind of concept. Uh, so that's important. Uh, you know, the, the transferability is it comes into, uh, you know, death, disability, and I would throw a divorce into that context as well you know, if you and I are partners, as we had talked about before, uh, and you get a divorce from your husband, you know, your husband's going to have a claim as to whether or not he has any interest in your 50 units of that company we were talking about. Uh, So now I face the potential of being an owner of a business with two divorced spouses. Um, Not exactly what I probably would have planned for or wanted to do. Uh, So dealing with that in the documents is important as well. But in the death and disability category, obviously you have a couple of issues. Um, What does that person do for the company? What's the impact on the company? So, you know, transferability wise, you know, does it go to their estate? Does their estate take an economic interest only versus a voting membership interest in the company? Uh, Is there a buyback opportunity at that point in time in the documents as well, where if somebody passes away, the company has the ability to buy back the shares or another partner in the company has the ability to buy back the shares? Uh, but the other part of that is, as well, you know, we're talking about usually key, key personnel, you know, what is it that they're providing to the business and what's the value of that? And ordinarily businesses that are particularly small businesses, ha- everybody has a role, uh, in some, some function that they do. And usually it's a vital function. That's how they ended up being partners in the first place. So what happens if you pluck one of those people out of that scenario, um, you know, what if I, what, what if I'm brilliant at creating things, but I couldn't sell anything to anyone? I mean, I could be a terrible salesperson, but you're perfect for sales. And all of a sudden you're out, you know, I, I'm never going to be able to pick up the, the ball and run with that sales function. That's not my, that's not my skill set. So what do you do? And a lot of times what folks do is they try to ensure for yeah. that situation with a key person policy, right? Because what you do is you take a, you know, What's it going to cost me as the business to replace your sales function? I'm going to have to go out there and hire somebody with that skill set. I may have to give them equity. That's a completely different conversation, but it's going to cost me something to bring other people into the mix to be able to replace that skill set. A key person insurance policy gives me the funding to be able to do that without cash flow crunching the business. And uh, mm-hmm. so, you know, oftentimes it's overlooked, but it really should be discussed. And, and that is, you know, funding that that potential key person loss through an insurance policy. It's very, very worthwhile for the business. And you can have policies like that as well that will buy out their shares upon death so that the company right. has the ability. So there are, there are different ways you can structure the insurance to the benefit of the business. But what you're doing is you're you're looking for a policy that will help the business survive in the event of a key person departure. Yeah. So that that's just that, you know, I just wanted to make sure I touched upon. Yeah, thank you for concept. bringing that
0: up. It had gotten I gotten into the insurance side of how that works on the legal side of this, that to <clears throat> mitigate that risk and protect the business future. So, well, that also kind of goes into other risks that people have. So I want to, as we sort of round up, oh, first, before we, uh, start to round the bend on closing this off. Let me tell everybody how to find you. So it's com And there's three T's in that. <laughs>
1: That's right. Triple okay? T in the domain, guys.
0: Yeah. M-A-T-T-T. And theory sounds like the theory of law, but there is not an E or an O. There's an I. So it's dot com. And you can go there and get uh, good information and, and connect up with Matt. And I think you have a newsletter or something that you send out as well, plus your podcast.
1: The podcast has an announced uh, newsletter as well. Yes. Yeah.
0: So very good. So, um, so one of the things, another mistake that a lot of times startups get into when they're getting started, you know, this whole investing versus expense kind of a deal, is that they maybe they figured out they've got money or they're spending money to go and do stuff, and they're taking it out of their personal accounts rather than setting up business accounts so that it's, they put the money into the business and establish their own investment in the business so the business can make those expenses. And it, it when they don't do that, there's, there's tax benefits for doing that because there's certain amount of losses that can be put towards uh, for startup expenses, but they set themselves on the road for doing this thing called the corporate veil that also if they get sued that business other things when they get sued can go through their business to their personal because they didn't do what they needed to do to put this wall between them and their business so sort of talk about the best practices for starting up and establishing your corporate veil and keeping that going because I have seen it not only hurt the company when they go to try to set their valuations up and investors look for that, but also I've had deals that didn't get done because when the investors started looking at their books, they could realize that they were sloppy in the way that they did their personal versus business and that corporate well was all commingled and all that kind of stuff and it just the, the deal never got done so It can impact them in all kinds of ways. So talk about that for
1: us, please. Yeah, sure. Thanks. And I appreciate that question as well. I I have litigated this this issue on many, many occasions, both on behalf of the person trying to pierce the corporate veil and on behalf of the company and the owners that are trying to prevent the piercing of the corporate veil. So this issue comes up quite a bit. Uh, So you know, in addition to clean books, I mean, excuse me, in addition to clean corporate records uh, that we talked about earlier, clean books are important for investors, but they're also important in order to protect the members or the owners of the business from individual liabilities. Generally speaking, when you form a corporation or an LLC, you're creating another person or entity. It's it's treated as though there's a separate person in, in, the, in the conversation. So no longer is it, Matt and Karen. it's Matt Karen and their company. And their company is a separate person, just like somebody else, a neighbor sitting next to you in a chair. And you have to treat that company like that person sitting in the chair next to you as opposed to you in order to protect yourselves. And what I mean by that and you use the term corporate veil, think of it as when you do business in the name of your company and you're properly doing it, most most liabilities of the company, are the company's liabilities, not your liabilities, All right? And if if you entered into a contract with another business, for example, and something happened and they sued for breach of contract, as long as everything is on the up and up, most situations involve that the company is the only potential party liable for the the damages out of that dispute. If you do certain things, um, you are opening up the door to the attorney representing the other side from arguing that you and the business are either the alter ego of one another. There's no real separateness or that we should be able to pass through that protection that's given to the corporation and reach into your own personal pockets to pay out those liabilities. And the most common situation that creates that opening for folks is commingling and Mm -hmm. commingling is you know, the, there are a lot of folks that like to run certain expenses through their business for the the ability to uh, try to expense those as a business expense until their accountant catches on to what they're doing and tells <laughs> them you can't do that. Um, but what it does, you know, if you're paying your personal mortgage out of your your company's bank account, you know, that's going to be a problem at some point in time. And it's not just a problem from the law. But if you're an investor, and you see that they're paying their personal mortgage out of their business account? Do I really want to invest in that company? Because do I really want to be paying for their mortgage? Or do I want this company to be using the money that I'm investing in the company to, to further my investment? Uh, so it creates different levels of different problems. But ultimately, yes, if, if you are going to be spending money for the business, you should create a business banking account and put the money into that account and spend the money out of that account. There are some maybe initial startup costs that you can't do that with. Like for example, the money that you use to pay the secretary of state for, or the lawyer for for creating the company with the secretary of state, because you typically cannot get an EIN for your business until you have a business. And then you can't get a bank account until you have the EIN. So it's kind of this circular argument. However, when you get the record set straight in your business, you can show that as a capital contribution to the business and, put it in the books, make sure it's accounted for properly. And you kind of want to stop the ball. You don't want to keep going with it at that point in time. It, you know, the original contribution, you book it, it's included. But, you know, paying for these personal expenses opens up a door. I mean, I had, I've had i had crazy situations. I had a construction company that, that had thousands and thousands of dollars of payments to PetSmart you know, and nothing to do with the construction business. And it was kind of an interesting thing because during the deposition of the construction company, I asked the question, you know, do you have any animals that you use for business purposes? Well, I knew full well that that was a silly question, but it was to illustrate the point that it's a construction company. And we are in the two thousands at that point in time, you know, we're not using horses. Uh, we're not using animals to construct it. You know, this is, this is a manpower type thing, manpower and equipment. And of course, the person laughed and said, no, of course not. Well, what they just did was they opened (laughs) what they what they just did is opened up the door for the corporate veil issue because of all of those thousands of dollars of charges to PetSmart. Small and silly example, but I think it drives the point home. Yes, commingling is a bad thing. You definitely want to talk to a lawyer about how to keep those things separate. An accountant will probably advise you the same because it makes their job much easier at accounting time.
0: So let's go the two kind of scenarios just to sort of clarify, because these are be, somebody could be listening and going, oh, no. So, you know, sometimes I hear this uh, like companies say, well, you know, I need to make X amount of mo- the founder. Like I need to make X amount of money or when I get this money from these investors, I'm going to pay off this fifty thousand dollars in loans that I took out or credit card debt that I've done in order to get to this. Uh, pay this, you know, to get this business going. Right. And, you know, it's a challenge sometimes when you're starting up to get credit in a business, cause it's a startup. It does really, the banks themselves rely on the personal credit and you may have to get a loan as that. So how, so the first piece of this is how do you, if you did incur a card or a credit card how I tell them when they're, I say, well, that's what you got to pay. That's your personal debt that you need to pay out of the salary that you start getting from your business. It is not a business debt unless you can move it completely over and do a transfer of that into it with the proper documentation of that. And then the business is going to be servicing that, live and breathe and die with that along that way. So, you, you know, there's a piece of it because maybe when you use your house as part of your assets to secure an SBA loan. And there's stuff that you can do that, but that would be in the business name. So there's that, those kind of things that you do, how do you get them into the business? And let's say you have a corporate credit card and you're out and you like, oh, I've got to, um, I didn't realize that I use that card and you see on your thing that there's a $150 charge for something that really wasn't a business expense so you don't put it on your taxes you know you don't do it like that is that enough of a of a of a co-mingling you know do do, do you have to make a real like specific letterhead that i paid myself back for that 150 dollars you know or can you just sort of just because you didn't declare it as an expense for taxes stuff like that kind of let it go by the wayside and it's not going to be an issue
1: yeah so Both of those issues on the first, uh, as you noted, usually when you go for for a loan, even in a more established, not necessarily all companies, but even in some of the more established companies, the bank is going to require a personal guarantee. Uh, that means that the bank, if the company doesn't pay, the bank's coming to you to pay. Your corporate veil is not going to protect you in that situation because you signed a document making yourself personally responsible. So that that is an exclusion to the the corporate veil. They don't need to pierce the corporate veil. They have a personal obligation created by you to get that money. Now, um, on the money that you put into the company and paying yourself back out of it, obviously it's, it's a documentation question and a disclosure issue. So you know, did you book the money going into the company as a capital contribution to the company? Or did you create a promissory note that says that you owe this money back at this rate over this period of time? And then if you did, I mean, if you did create a note, and it is payable over a period of time at a reasonable interest rate, then you need to disclose that to the investors going into it so that they know that some of the investment money that they're giving is going to be used to pay back this loan that you made. Uh, They may then qualify, that relationship with you to say we will lo- we will invest in your business however you're not going to take the money that we give you to pay that note or you can they they you know that at that point in time at least they're aware of it and they have the ability to address right. it but but just let me get the money and then I'll deal with it as I want is going to most likely create a pretty strong problem with your investors quite early on. The last question you asked was if I use the credit card improperly by accident, for example, you know, there's been times where someone's gone to the gas pump, pulled the wrong card out, put it in, realized it later and you're like, Oh, I put $50 worth of gas in my car. And now I've got an expense on the business. The best way to deal with that is to take a, a personal check, write it out for that amount, put it into the company and put reimbursement for improper or accidental use of business credit card. The money comes in, it washes out the expense. There's no business expense taken for it. There's no gain taken by the income because there's no income. It's just a wash. And it takes away that personal commingling effect. So yeah, accidents happen. It's not the end of the world. If you Charged gas on your company credit card that wasn't related to the business. I want to qualify that. There are times where maybe gas charging to the business is appropriate. Uh, but if it's not a business expense and you accidentally paid it with your credit card, you can document it by writing a check out to the business putting the money back into the business in the reimbursement side, you can do a journal entry in the, in the accounting records. They account for that. And yeah, that takes away that commingling aspect of things, but you definitely want to be careful about it. An occasional accidental slip up is not necessarily going to provide a basis to pierce the corporate veil. It's more of the regular disregard of the separateness of the money. That's the company's money and your money.
0: Yeah. Okay, and then I know we're we're running a little long here for folks that are listening, but there's just I have I have one more kind of concept that I really feel like it's important for the listeners to get. If you're dealing with this as a startup, you're dealing with this as we're as we're moving forward. So appreciate you sticking and listening with us. One of the things that comes up all the time, and it's uh, is intellectual property ownership. Okay, so you know the, it kind of gets tied into when you are having outsourced whether you have employees that are developing something for you you're outsourcing it you're going to some, you're hiring a firm as independent contractors to develop some kind of intellectual property even when it comes to creating your graphics and your branding and your your identity of your business those kind of things that are are part of that that you need to make sure don't take anything for granted that you, the company itself owns that. And then this kind of ties into with the founder that might've filed for patent work when they first started under their name. And how does that get into being an asset of the company? Because investors want to make sure when they're investing in the company that the company owns the intellectual property. So what are some of the pieces of paper? or strategies or methods to make sure that the company that is going to be the thing that gains value and gets investment owns the intellectual property that the success is based upon.
1: Sure, if you're having an employee develop something. You want them to have an employment agreement that contains clauses in it that states that anything developed on behalf of the company is owned by the company and not the employee. There's a lot of specific language that needs to go into that. Similarly, if you hire an independent contractor or some sort of vendor to create something for you, you want that language in there as well. Usually it's referred to as a work for hire scenario where the ownership is not retained by the company creating it, but you, the company for which it was created, uh, that, that, that is an absolute must. Uh, otherwise, you're going to get into a lot of arguments about it, especially if some way, somehow that intellectual property becomes more valuable over time. It's sort of like the scenario that you talked about with the, the young lady who wasn't necessarily documented into the business properly, but later on they needed to get her documented. The leverage when you're having that conversation early on is, is with you, the person that's hiring that person to do the work. Once that thing becomes of, of uh, increased value and you haven't documented it, getting that documentation is going to cost you more money. So you don't want to wait. You want to do that on the front end. the the It's very common for intellectual property to be registered in the name of one of the owners as they form the business or prior to forming the business. Now, there are a couple of things you can keep in mind. Sometimes that's intentional. Sometimes the owner wants to own and, and license that IP to the business. That way that at some point in the future, if the business sells, they still own the IP and they license, they have a licensing agreement with the business. That's fine. As long as it's documented and that's fine. If, if investors really want that IP in the the business, in order for them to be willing to invest into the business, then they're going to have to have an assignment of that L uh, that IP into the company so that the company then takes ownership of that. And there's an assignment agreement that would be formed between the owner of the IP and the company to which it's being transferred.
0: Okay. So um, along with that, it sort of gets into uh, non-disclosure, non-competes, right? I mean, different states like Georgia, for example, has has a right to work. So sometimes non-competes can have, you know, I'll give like, so Entrepreneurs often, very often, want people to sign an NDA, right? They, they say, you know, and, and angel investors notoriously will refuse to sign any NDA. Same thing with VC firms. And they do that because they feel like they've got to protect and these people have all this money so they could go out and, and steal their idea and go about and do that. And I, and I tell them, I go, well, look, there's all kinds of ways that you to protect your ideas that you need to rely on for protecting your ideas you know and some things are going to be common just business sense so you need to be focused on what is it that you're going to require an nda on because if it's too vague then you know it's it's not going to be defendable anyhow and it's going to be a barrier to have the conversations with the entrepreneurs i mean with the investors that you want to have like i for one will sign any nda mostly because i say i see everything and they'll have this little law clause in there that says not uh, something about like not generally available in the marketplace or something like that it's not commonly known in the marketplace and you say I, i because i believe your nda is going to be invalid you know because of the fact that there's so much that i see and i don't have as much to lose as say an angel investor does so i'm not you know, refusing to because I'm protecting my interests. I'm just like going, you know what? And I also know that you're out there talking to the people that you feel like you can talk to about this without an NDA. And so you have now disclosed it in a setting that if uh, for some reason we ever got into that, I'd be able to say that it was no longer the confidential information because you readily disclosed it in various forms of communication. And it was generally available. There's really rarely there's really a tiny sliver of an actual business on in there that would uh cause that to be that you know to 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 do that so talk talk about that and talk about you know this this golden handcuffs or this trying to keep key resources from going someplace when you really don't have the ability to do that and your goal is for them and not walk out the door with all of your assets, there's different ways to do that within a, an employee agreement versus a non-compete.
1: Sure. So I would start by saying that you know there the laws on these issues vary greatly from state to state. This is one of those issues where uh, one state versus another is very different, and even in law within that state changes over time. For example, in Georgia, in May of 2011, the law on uh, non-solicitation and non-compete uh, agreements changed dramatically. There was yes. uh, an amendment to the Georgia Constitution on this issue, and Georgia was originally very, very hostile towards the enforcement of a non-solicit, non-compete agreement. Uh, you know, uh, they—if there were any issues at all as to overbreadth, any kind of scope, territory, uh, time, any of these types of things the Georgia court was looking for an opportunity to strike it and say it's unenforceable. Uh, So that was a very employee or exiting owner friendly uh, environment. Um, The law changed kind of flipped around. It's much more enforceable than it used to be. Now Uh, the non-compete non-solicitation agreements with owners of a business has always been looked at as more enforceable than employees uh, because it, particularly in the sale of a business context, because what they're trying to protect is, you know, you're sold, you sold the business to me. And then tomorrow across the street, you open up a business that does the same thing. The people know you, they're coming to you. I bought nothing. Uh, so that has always been a, a more favorably looked upon enforceable sure. agreement. The, you know, the difference, difference is obviously a non-compete tells you, you cannot perform a specific service within a sp- specific period of time within a specific area. Uh, so that is sort of like handcuffing you a little bit as to what you can do. Uh, non-solicitation is a little less restrictive in the sense that it usually just keeps you from soliciting your customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, if, you know, if I bought a business and it has a, a book of business, I can't go after that book of business. Now, I could go after somebody else across the street, but if they haven't done business with the business I'm selling, I'm not really taking anything away from their ability to compete with me for that business on the same grounds. Uh, an NDA. An NDA much different in the sense that what you're trying to do is protect certain information from disclosure and use. You're right. uh, It, you know, they get they get off into the never never land here on how vague they can be and what they actually do protect and what they take reasonable steps to protect and what actually qualifies as confidential information in the first place. So do you have general carve outs, uh, things that are in the public domain, things that are disclosed in public that had nothing to do with a breach of the NDA. I mean, things like that, that you have, Uh, you know, is it, is it advisable that you try to protect your confidential information? Yes. But you need to know what it is that you're protecting and why you're protecting it before you just make a broad statement that you're protecting all of your information, because all of your information is not going to qualify as confidential information. So you have to know what it is that you're disclosing that's a problem. If it gets out, Uh, you know, typically, this is, you know, if, if someone were providing the the formula for Coca-Cola, for example, I would, I would highly anticipate that there would be an NDA involved sure. in something like that, because that's a trade secret. That's not known to the public. Um, uh, that that's something that you need to button down. Uh, and you know, that's, that's something protectable that really should be subject to an NDA. Uh, other information, general, general information about your industry and what you do most of it, you're probably publishing on your website. Um, Because, you know, you're telling everybody else what you do, because you're trying to attract them to your business. So, you know, what is it you're trying to protect, you just have to be careful about it. They do have a they do have a place, there certainly are applications where an NDA is important. Uh, But just because you have information doesn't mean it's protectable with an NDA. I think you pointed that out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the last thing I want to say, because this always comes up, do you form a company in your state or you go to Delaware? So, what is like the fund, What is the attraction to Delaware? Are they more favorable for these kind of protections and founder shares, or something like that, or is it just easier because then it's sort of like a, a level up from all your state rules? Or what? Why is there such an attraction? And then you hear sometimes of Nevada too. So, what is yeah. there an attraction for what those particular or states have done versus what happens within a state that you're located? and then you're going to be operating.
1: So the general reason that folks talk about Delaware, for example, is that Delaware has a very well-defined book of law on corporations. They have the case law in place. They have statutes in place. Um, A lot of other States have caught up. That's why you're hearing other names being tossed into the mix, but the, the reality of it is it, it, you can find a lot of information about this online as well, but for the majority of businesses, the majority of businesses should probably be incorporated or formed in the business in which their headquarters is located. You're taking on additional expenses to be, you're gonna have to register in the business in the state where you are. Principally located anyway. So let's say you're a Georgia business and you want to be a Delaware LLC. You can form your Delaware LLC, but you're going to have to then register that Delaware LLC with Georgia. So you're going through a yearly process of renewing both. There's there are expenses associated with having a registered agent in the state with formation. So you're going to have to have somebody in that state that can take legal process for you. If you get sued, you're going to get sued out out of your own state. You're going to have to go to Delaware to go defend your case. So you're going to have to deal with that as well. But the benefits that were there are, are really more now, I think, geared towards the large multinational corporations. So, you know, if, you, if you're a very, very large business that has um, owners in just about every state and maybe even outside of the country, you know, then looking at states like Delaware makes sense. But for the overwhelming majority of businesses, and, I, and I'm, when I say overwhelming, I mean substantially overwhelming majority of businesses, the benefit is not there. To go to these other states to do it you probably should look at your own state and form your own uh, llc within your own state
0: okay very good thank you thank you that's always something that comes up you know and uh and so last question uh i uh is there a provision because you hear this a lot of times when companies get going i, I had we had a, cl- a company that our nba uh, and i had invested in and it got into this whole rigmarole you kind of alluded to some of the stuff early on That was like where we there was a founder who had brought in a ceo and the ceo had sort of like had this one vision in the direction they were bringing in other executives and the founder kind of i don't know sort of had a temper tantrum let's just call it like that right and um and got you know all like i'm taking my company back and you know this kind of a thing and ultimately got kicked to the curb now he had the some of the shares and stuff like that so is there something that would go into the operating agreement that would guarantee a founder not getting kicked to the curb or is it really only you know, where they were going to have to carve out whatever their founder's shares are and maybe an anti dilution provision to that. And that's the best way they could do if they don't, if they bring in the wrong people or they make their own mistakes or whatever that says the governing body that now has shareholders and fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders thinks the best thing, the board thinks the best thing is to remove that founder and that in whatever executive role that they're in. Is, is all the best they got is the shares that they have down yeah the road.
1: yeah i mean it, it comes down to your operational documents and how much of a vote is required to to force a, a purchase or a sale of somebody's interest in the company how much control is retained by any one person you know the the founder if the if the board of directors is, is by vote of the shareholders, if the founder is holding on to, you know, 51% of the shares, then the founder has control of the board of directors, And the board of directors typically has control over the hiring and firing of officers and employees. So that it, it really comes down to how much protection did you build into those original documents for yourself? It, it, there's, probably no silver bullet type scenario where you can protect yourself wholly from that situation unless you're holding on to a majority of the ownership interest in the company. Okay.
0: All right. Well, you know, thank you, Matt. I, this, I think this has been highly informative. I'm hoping all the listeners out there share this with an entrepreneur, you know, share this with a new investor, uh, like it and give us five stars, all that good stuff. Uh, Anything else you'd like to add before we say our goodbyes? Uh,
1: Other than to thank you for the opportunity. It's been a real pleasure to be on your show.
0: Thank you very much. And again, visit uh, Matt over at Matt Theory Law. That's with three T's and an I. And uh, also obviously go to karenrands.co to get all the information about how we work with entrepreneurs and investors. And with that, I say onwards and upwards. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening to the Compassionate Capitalist Podcast Radio, where we encourage individual investment in entrepreneurs to create generational wealth and best practices for small businesses to succeed. Help us spread the word about compassionate capitalism by sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues. The Compassionate Capitalist Podcast is available on most podcast platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and many more. In production for over 10 years, there are over 180 episodes available for your listening and educational pleasure. With over 130,000 downloads, this podcast is rapidly becoming the top podcast for investors and entrepreneurs to get the information they need to create generational wealth through entrepreneurism. This podcast is brought to you by the Business Power Tools which offers an online collaborative environment for leadership teams to prepare business plans, marketing strategies, financial modeling needed to attract capital and scale a business. Also, Lendio as a entrepreneurs resource portal providing access to dozens of lenders offering short term and long term debt to help business owners manage their financial cash flow and growth capital needs. Bizx creating affordable advertising resources, and other tools for entrepreneurs to succeed and create awareness and trust with their customer base. And Launch Funding Network, part of Cougarand Capital Holdings. is a network of hundreds of angel investors, investor clubs and networks, venture capital firms, private equity funds, family offices, investment bankers, and lenders. Please visit KarenRance.co to learn more about the Launch Funding Network, and our sponsors, and to sign up to get our Compassionate Capitalist Coffee Break and learn more about how we can help
1: you succeed.